Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, from the Farnborough International Air Show, meeting in person for the first time in the past four years. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Britain's decision to add Japan to its team, Tempest, that's developing the country's next generation fighter, along with Sweden and Italy. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and we are a Farnborough International Airshow media partner, and our coverage of Britain's leading airshow is sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. We met with Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall at the airshow earlier today. Here's our conversation. Secretary Kendall, thanks uh, so very much for joining us. We know how busy you are here at the airshow uh, and really appreciate the time as always. Thank you, Vago. It's good to be with you as always. It certainly is a consequential time. Last time you and I had a chance to talk was in March uh, when we were at the Air Force Association's Air Warfare Symposium. Uh, one of the top questions I had for you was what are the lessons we're learning, or you're learning rather, uh, from watching the Russian uh, war on Ukraine. We're now um, many months more into that. What are you learning in a sort of differentiated way, not just about their operations, but broader lessons, right? You're one of the people who 15 years ago was saying, the future war with a great power might not be a quick, short, sharp one, but could actually be a prolonged grinding, and that we really haven't made those investments to have that kind of infrastructure, to have that approach, to have the supply chains, and indeed we're seeing that strain. That's another question, but what are the key takeaways for you now, sort of five, six months into this war? That's uh, a great question. The, uh, there are a lot of different perspectives one can have. Let me try to keep mine to from where I sit right now as Secretary of the Air Force, um, the importance of air power and the importance of taking control of the air. Quite obviously, the Russians were not able to do that. Uh, another is that the, the Ukrainians have used their air defenses very effectively, and it's limited what the Russians have been able to do quite significantly. Um, the utility of precision munitions is quite clear, and the increased utility on the battlefield of drones of various type, particularly lethal drones for different applications, right? So uh, there are a number of things there. Um, space has played a role here, which is, I think, significant. Electronic warfare has played a role, which is significant. So there are a lot of things that I think we can infer about how technology is changing warfare and what those implications are. It's clear also, though, that the Ukraine's not the final answer on any of those. Uh, I think people went into it with uh, unrealistic expectations, particularly on the part of the Russians. They were surprised by their own limitations, and they're now trying to recover from that and have now embarked on a, a grinding war of attrition as their only alternative, not at all what they intended to do when they came in. Uh, the Ukrainians have shown remarkable uh, will to fight and uh, good adaptability and good applications of some of the systems that they've been able to use against the Russians. Uh, there's a big disparity in, in capacity between the two nations and you know that's affecting how things are going now. It's a tragedy that uh, enormous number of innocent people are suffering and what we need to do now is find a way to bring it to an end. Are there, um, as you look at how the Russians uh, are operating in this particular instance, are there any 
you know, does it change the dynamic, for example, in the balance, whether for NGAD or any other program, the manned-unmanned mix? I mean, does there, are you reconsidering any sort of foundational approaches that were going into programmatic decisions that you were weighing in the wake of this uh, operation, which there is a certain degree of applicability for what we do with, for example, the Russians and the Chinese? Um, fundamentally, no. The, the, the adversary potentially that we're worried about uh, most, our pacing challenge as we call it, uh, we don't think is as, as incompetent as Russia was in this case. So you got to be careful about how you apply those lessons. The, uh, uh, Russia will also learn from its experiences here. So while we can learn from this, this isn't the final word by any means on what the future of warfare will look like. Uh, I think all observers, as they have for the last few conflicts, will be taking their own lessons from this and going forward. So it's, it's I, I can expect in different geopolitical situation, uh, different different situation in a number of regards, very different behaviors and outcomes as a result of that. So it really hasn't changed my view on that. The environment that we anticipate for the future, for our forces, is going to be much more stressing than we're seeing right now in the, in, uh, the Russia-Ukraine situation. Um, let me uh, take you to the question of um, munitions, consumables, and replenishing American stocks. Um, as I mentioned, uh, you and I were having a conversation about what a future war looks like and that it might be a long one many, many years ago. In this instance, you know, you just took a flight in a uh, Spitfire, which has got to be one of the coolest things ever. Um, that was an airplane, I know you're a student of acquisition history, that was developed and fielded in like four years. The P-51 Mustang went from clean sheet when the RAF visited uh, North American to a flying airplane in like 180 days. In this modern instance, governments are asking contractors to deliver stuff, and the answer is, well, in four years we're going to get there. What do we need to do, Mr. Secretary, now to be able to get that throughput in a meaningful way because adversaries are watching and they're like, well, they have the systems, but they don't have any bombs. All of a sudden, the systems don't look that mean anymore. How do we work this out to get that throughput and get it at the speed of relevance, um, ultimately? And what's the investment that may be required to get you there? There's a lot in that question, Vago. Um, people who start wars usually expect them to be short. That is often not the case. Uh, the situation we're dealing with with our, our pacing challenges are uh, uh, our, our countries that have a lot of nuclear weapons. And you have to think about that when you think about the course over which a conflict might take. What, what we need to be able to do, in, in my view, is deter aggression, and if aggression occurs, defeat that act of aggression and make it clear that we can do that. Uh, I'm a Cold War veteran, and I don't go all the way back to the time of the Spitfire, but I go back a few years. Uh, and during the Cold War, we had a situation in Europe where we both had large-scale forces deployed and ready to fight, and we both had nuclear weapons in our arsenals as fallbacks in case things didn't go well. We never tested that system or that scenario. Uh, scenarios we're looking at in the future uh, could look a little bit like that in some ways. So we need to think very carefully about, about that, and controlling escalation in that kind of a situation is an incredibly important thing. You may have to get into a conflict which may be limited and which may go on much longer than you expect. The goal is to avoid that. The goal is to deter. And you deter partly by making sure the other side doesn't think you can get a quick win. But if you fail at deterrence, you may be in a situation where you don't get a quick win either. And that's sort of what has happened in the Ukraine. Uh, in that situation, you do need the ability to go longer 
which means you need spare parts, you need munitions, you need to reconstitute, you need to be able to manage attrition in a way which we're not used to. We haven't had to do for a very long time living memory, basically. So we need to think about it much more carefully. We need to be prepared for that uh, and, and have, some, to a certain degree, the resources in being to deal with that. The lead time for manufacturing for all of our sophisticated systems is at, at the shortest on the order of maybe two years. That's true for munitions and platforms. So that's a long time, and that means you're going to be living with what you have. And you go back to the World War II scenario, uh, once we came into the war, it took us until 1944 to build up the force that we were going to need. We did some things fast, but it was a long-term project to get to the size force that we needed to get the mass that we needed. I was in the Spitfire, and I, one of the things I noticed about the Spitfire was the simplicity of the design, that it was a very uncomplicated design that could be manufactured relatively quickly. There were a lot of cables and you know pulleys and you know levers and mechanisms, and I was strapped into a, 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 a very tight aluminum container. Uh, there was some great innovation in the way the aerodynamically in the way that aircraft. It had a great engine in the Merlin engine, and it was able to perform very well. Uh, I wish we could do things you know very very quickly. Uh, some things we can. I use the MRAP example sometimes. But again, a relatively simple design compared to the types of weapon systems we normally buy. To go a little further, when we talk about the, uh, we're talking a lot about a uh, uncrewed collaborative combat aircraft that could have a modular design, uh, could be upgraded relatively quickly, and could be tailored and uh, provide a platform by which you could do a lot of things continuously to upgrade it and give it greater capabilities. And that's, that, that, that approaching a design for a new system like that gives us some options that we don't have with most of our current designs. What are the kind of investments that are necessary to get you the weapons throughput you need from a production standpoint, right? I mean, you talked about deterrence. Part of deterrence is uh, you got full magazines because the other guy can always count, right? They go, wow, you know, we estimated them to have 20,000 javelins or X number of precision munitions, and it's like, hey, their burn rate is such that I think they're at a low point. How do you make those investments and telegraph, right? Nothing could be more powerful than Frank Kendall getting up and saying, you know, six months ago we were too low, but now I'm at actually 150% and on the road to 200. How do, you, how do you get that production, even if you're drawing globally from all of our allies and partners? Some of that is to prioritize the stockpiles you need uh, when you buy initially. Uh, that's true for weapon systems, for munitions, and for spares, and for other things. Um, another thing is to facilitize industry. So you have, you don't have the gap in time to, to basically tool up to make the production that, that you're going to need. Now, there's a lot of there's a lot more flexible manufacturing available now than there was, you know, a, a decade ago, let's say, and so you can take advantage of that as well. Um, I I don't think people should underestimate what the industrial base can do when it's asked to move quickly and to do things. I think it actually has much more potential than we realize. Uh, but we got to think about that and plan and make some investments to make sure that's there. Do you have a sense how much that investment would be? No, I don't. You, you mentioned the Cold War and nuclear uh, adversaries, and uh, you know it, it was not lost on people. The E-4B was at the Royal International Air Tattoo uh, over the weekend, and that's an airplane that normally doesn't make it to the international air show circuit. Speaking more broadly, and, and not whether or not there was any strategic messaging in that, some people think so, might not be, the airplane does a lot of other missions. But talk to us about how the nuclear modernization effort in the United States Air Force is going. The B-21 is moving ahead. I know that's another program you can't talk a lot about. But just give us this quick sense of where we are 
on the nuclear modernization portfolio that is actually one of the most important things the United States Air Force delivers to the nation. Yeah, I'm uh, because of my prior involvement with the contractor, I'm recused on both B-21 and, and the Sentinel ICBM. Uh, but both programs are, you know, they're very high priority. And uh, they're, they're going to be funded to move forward as quickly as we can to get those systems fielded. The, uh, the ICBMs in particular are aging out and need to be replaced. And the uh, bomber leg needs to be, be, be recapitalized to some extent. So we're, we're, I, I, I tell everybody in, that, that talks about these programs, never say very glowing positive things about how programs are going because they all have risk. They all can get into trouble. And I've seen most of them do it. So at this point in time, I don't have any, I'll call it major concerns about those programs. The B-21 is going to fly fairly soon. Uh, the Sentinel has a longer way to go. Um, all development programs entail risk. They're all hard. They all have problems at some point. Uh, but these are two very important programs for us, and we're going to get them fielded. Um, let me ask you about the Chief's uh, integrated by uh, design concept. It's something uh, that had everybody's riveted attention at the Royal Air Force's uh, Global Air and Space Chiefs uh, Conference when he was presenting, talking about the importance of having actually a global uniform architecture, right? Yep. That he wants diversity uh, of different platforms, different weapons but how we can make sure that we can knit everybody together kind of more at the outset than not. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that concept and how we can knit together NGAD, Tempest, and SCAF, three critically important programs that, that include some of our most important allies. And if I'm not mistaken, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is on uh, the floor of Parliament announcing that Japan is going to be joining the Tempest effort, uh, given that it's the Royal Air Force, Swedish Air Force, uh, and the Italian Air Force, and SCAF obviously is France, Germany, Spain. Give us your sense on what integrated by uh, design means, and what does it mean for the high-end combat aircraft force? Uh, you, you know, Vago, that for many years we've tried to do modular designs, we've tried to have interoperability. Uh, we've not been as successful as we'd like to be. As we, as we mature uh, ABMS for the Air Force and JADC squared more generally, interoperability is going to be important, uh, not just between the, within the joint force, but with our allies and partners as well. And I think it's really important to get this right. The, one of the greatest strategic strengths of the United States is its partnerships around the world and the alliances that we have. And those, those alliances can be much, much more effective if we have operational interoperability. So making sure we plan for that, making sure we design for that, have technologies that we can share so that we can make that a reality are very important. Uh, there are also potential opportunities in some of the new things that we're doing. Uh, the uncrewed combat aircraft, the collaborative combat aircraft is an opportunity perhaps to do, to do better there. What, what has happened in the past when we look at platforms in particular is that design constraints have kind of forced that kind of capability out. So we're gonna to try to avoid that this time, but it's difficult to do. When you do an integrated design, uh, there are an awful lot of things you're trying to get on, a lot of trade-offs you have to make, and the kind of modularity that allows you to do that more effectively tends to be something that gets sacrificed for a variety of reasons. We're going to make a really good effort to do that, in, uh, particularly in the case of the collaborative combat aircraft, though. And, and so um, whatever aircraft the United States field, you feel will be thoroughly interoperable with the future platforms our allies and partners field? I mean, that's clearly the intent. It's going to take some coordination, some investments by our partners as well as by the United States. Uh, the, the difficulty often is that people have already made commitments to things and somebody has to change, right? So the more lead time you have, the better your opportunity is to actually make that happen. We also have to be able to share some technologies to make that a reality.
I know there's not a lot you can say about the next generation air dominance uh, platform, but you did uh, spark a considerable amount of discussion at the uh, Air Force Association uh, when you said that there will still be competition. Uh, there was a sense because it's in the program is in engineering, manufacturing, development. We're down to a contractor. Uh, there was a lot of debate on who that contractor is. We do that on our program, of course. I'm not asking you to comment on any of it. Um, and then after you made that comment, was a lot of discussion about okay, so there are multiple guys in EMD. How do you still have competition? Because you said we will still have competition. Then the surmise was that the reason you're saying that is that the Air Force was the prime contractor uh, of the system, which is another way of doing it, which is the way the Air Force used to do it in a sense in terms of playing a much more forward role. As much as you can without giving up classification, where do we stand and how are you going to have competition in this program? Because there was a lot of debate and discussion about what the right track is going forward and maybe some misinformation, misunderstanding and disinformation. Um, I think I can help with that a little bit. The uh, the fault was mine, and uh, it has to do with how old I am, I think, and it's not that I forget things. It's that for most of my career, EMD started uh, earlier than it does today. For me, EMD starts, engineering manufacturing development starts when you start working on the design that's gonna be your production design. In the more, last several years, we have nominally started EMD at preliminary design review which for me historically is, let's just say a year or two into the design process. So we are in that early stage of EMD, in my vernacular, prior to preliminary design review. That gives you a sense of where we are. And normally we don't down-select anymore until we get to that more mature stage of development. So we are still in a competition. We are still in a competition. And the United States Air Force is not the prime contractor of this program you will have a prime contractor in this program. We will for the platform, and it's not the United States Air Force. The U U.S. Air Force will be involved in the integration of the family of systems, uh, and we may have some assistance with contractors for that, but we will not be the prime for the platform. And one last question. You're spending two days at the Farnborough International Air Show. You were at the Royal International Air Tattoo for uh, two days. Why are meetings like this so important to you? Well, it's a great opportunity to get together face-to-face -face with so many of our partners. For me, it's a chance to get exposed to a lot of the technologies that have been emerging over the last few years while I've been out of government. Uh, it, it, it's, it's great for relationships with our international partners on the government-to-government -government basis, military-to-military, -military, and also for, for industry as well. So it, it's, uh, it, and after the hiatus we had because of COVID, it's really just great to get back together and see people face-to-face -face and build those relationships. Mr. Secretary, thank you very much. It's always an honor and pleasure and already looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much. Same here, Vago. Always good to be with you. And joining us now is one of our regular co-conspirators, Sash Tuza from the independent London research firm Agency Partners. Uh, Sash, uh, thanks so very much. Uh, pleasure uh, seeing you today at the show and also last night at the uh, Aerospace Journalism uh, Awards Dinner, uh, where we were honored to uh, win uh, best digital content uh, for our uh, uh, podcast uh, that we do with you guys uh, every Sunday. And it was an honor and pleasure uh, to celebrate that with you. Fargo, uh, it was a you know, huge achievement by you. You built a, an absolutely fantastic podcast brand, and it was, it was an absolute pleasure for me to see you being uh, awarded that.
thanks very much. It was an honor and it was, a, a, you know, incredible to be uh, considered uh, with so many other distinguished uh, reporters, uh, honorees, and just everybody uh, in that room. And it was tremendous seeing Alan Wynn and Chris Pocock, real, you know, friends and mentors uh, to, uh, you know, be uh, awarded lifetime uh, awards. And I should also say, uh, you know, we wouldn't have this show if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for Richard, uh, and it wasn't for Ron Epstein every week joining us uh, for the program and for the audience uh, that gives us uh, their precious time each week. So we're thankful for that. Okay, uh, getting to business. Uh, it was a very busy uh, Farm Air show day one, um, you know, a lot of meetings, uh, some and a very, very big announcement by uh, Boris Johnson uh, in Parliament. Talk to us about what this decision means, because we've hinted or you've hinted, I should say, on several programs uh, that uh, it was coming. Yeah, um, I mean, this is the uh, announcement by the UK that that Japan is going to be brought into the UK-led Tempest uh, Future Combat Air, Air System program. Um, Tempest, as you know, you and many of our listeners will recall, is the it's the UK Next Generation Air Superiority. They call it a system, but I mean we have to focus on the aircraft first. The system will will coalesce around it, I think, over time. Um, so this is a successor to. Um, you know, actually, to be fair, the UK has never really had an air superiority aircraft. The nearest the UK has had has been the Tornado F3, which is stretching it a bit. Japan, however, this is the successor to the F-15J. And um, why is this important? Tempest started off uh, as a relationship between the UK and Sweden uh, and with Leonardo in the UK involved. Then uh, Leonardo in Italy became involved and then Italy became involved. So it became a tri-national program. Um, what was interesting among the many things that were interesting about today's uh, announcement is that the UK Ministry of Defence is still referring to this as a tri-national programme, but now it's a tri-national programme, UK, Italy uh, and Japan. Where is Sweden in all this? Uh, it seems, and I'm going to you know, track down various uh, Swedish contacts over the next couple of days at the show and just sort of bounce this off them, but I mean, it seems that Sweden has just had to uh, look at, or not look elsewhere, but has had to refocus its defence efforts since the war on Ukraine and since its um, uh, acceptance into NATO. And certainly the spin being put on it by uh, the UK Ministry of Defence is that Sweden is an incredibly important part of future combat air in its broadest sense, has been involved and has been informed about the decision to invite Japan into Tempest. But in the short term, and you, you know better than most, short term in defence is measured in years still, but in the short term, Sweden's priorities are probably just rebuilding its Gripen fleet. The Swedish Gripen fleet had fallen to 60 aircraft. Uh, they originally built 212, I think, of the aircraft. Um, and the Swedes now realise that they have just got to buy up, you know, probably as many again before they look at the next generation aircraft. They need mass before they need uh, quality. So, um, you know, Sweden is probably a little bit left out by this, but, you know, I and many others asked directly, you know, are, you know, are you misleading or have you left the Swedes out? And we got a very, very emphatic no. But Japan is a huge prize here. Uh, it's a huge prize because the Japanese, I mean, you know, the Japanese get uh, the requirement for long range air to air, long range air superiority. They are facing the Russians, they're facing the Chinese. Um, every day at range. Uh, if you look at the number of incursions by Russian and Chinese aircraft, um, it's pretty much 
two, three a day, averaging out over a year at the moment. Um, and I'm really struck by the degree to which the Japanese program, which I think will eventually fold into Tempest, uh, the FX program, has got a specification that is not dissimilar, that is British understatement, to the original specification for the Tornado F3, right. i.e. an aircraft that can loiter uh, or, or you know, patrol at range, where range is three, 400 nautical miles, um, carrying a big load of long-range missiles, eight probably. And when the time comes, when the targets are identified, can then accelerate to supersonic speed, can launch those uh, missiles, turn with a great deal of agility um, to avoid the incomers, and then turn and re-engage. So you need acceleration. You need the ability to carry a, a lot of missiles. You need a big radar. It really helps to have stealth because you don't want to be taking incoming. Um, right. And Apart from that last, those were all the requirements that the British had for the Tornado, tornado F2, F3, 40, actually 55, 60 years ago. Um, and they're exactly the requirements that the UK is looking at now, which is the ability to engage incoming Russian aircraft somewhere over the Norwegian Sea or further, or the Baltic Sea even. Uh, and that, I think, is why this is a very, very logical uh, um, you know, relationship. But it's fascinating because Japan has been heavily... Uh, involved uh, or heavily dependent on U.S. technology in the past, and they seem to be breaking that pattern. So that is uh, a very, very interesting uh, development. And I should also point out, right, that the Japanese are F-35 uh, customers and partners uh, as well, right? I mean, so this is part of a broader modernization effort. And we should point out that Tempest will not be an operational aircraft until 2030 or so. Japanese, a little bit frustrated. We would never sell them the F-22. So they do want that kind of high-end capability, even if yeah. they eventually went for the F-35. We only have a couple of minutes left, but the question uh, is what does this mean for the other partners, right? Because Japan generally tends to buy more uh, or will buy a sizable order likely. Um, what does that do for the dynamic? Uh, and it is also a very industrially sophisticated partner. You know, it's one thing to have Britain, Sweden, and Italy, and certainly Britain and Italy are very close collaborative partners. What does it mean when the Japanese get involved in this? And does it create any export challenges, right? The Japanese have been very, very careful about exporting, whereas Sweden, Italy, and Britain are very, very strong arms exporters worldwide. Okay, so I mean, look, those are those are great questions. First of all, what does it mean in? I'll do it in reverse. What does it mean in terms of exports? Um, I don't think it is going to be as bad as if Germany came into Tempest. The Germans uh, have had a certainly a period over the last ten years where, uh, if there is conflict, they ban exports, and that has caused all sorts of stress, particularly for the Eurofighter Typhoon program. Uh, uh, BA Systems and the UK has not really been able to export. Eurofighter, uh, you know, an additional tranche of Eurofighters to Saudi Arabia because the Germans banned it because of the war in Yemen. I think we don't know what the Japanese attitude will be to exports, but I have a very high degree of confidence that part of the negotiations to bring the Japanese into Tempest will have been to sign an undertaking or, you know, to, to accept an undertaking that if an export is acceptable to one partner, it's acceptable to all. Um, historically, France and Germany have uh, undertakings like this called the Schmidt-Debray uh, principles. Um, those have you know, not survived the last 10 years or so, and that's caused the French huge stress, and it's doing so with SCAF now. But so I don't see the export issue as being a big issue for bringing the, Japan, uh, the Japanese in. 
In terms of you know work share, yeah, you know Japan is hugely sophisticated. The trade-off is always, I may lose a bit of work share, but I'm going to get a ton more market. And provided um, those, you know, that balance can be struck, I don't think the Italians, the Swedish, the British are going to be worried too much. My suspicion would be that ultimately Japan will end up having a separate, let's call it a tempest production line in Asia for those that wants to, you know, to buy an Asian developed or rather an Asian produced aircraft right. and other nations will buy from European production lines. Um, I think we're a very, very long way, though, from that decision being made. Sash, thanks so very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on uh, for color commentary as we go uh, through this extraordinary week. Break a leg uh, tomorrow and looking forward to seeing you uh, tomorrow at that great show. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you at the show, Vargas. Take care. Thanks again.